Welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Biden agenda. So, Richard, we are now in the countdown to the beginning of the Biden administration, still a couple of months away. But we are already seeing reports in the press of what the initial agenda is going to look like and suggestions that there is going to be a big emphasis on executive orders in the early days, which has become typical in recent years because presidents want to be able to point to things they've done right out of the gate. But let's review the bidding on what some of the early priorities are. The first one dovetails well with your column on defining ideas this week, which is that a Biden administration would be intent on bringing the United States back in to the Paris Climate Treaty. Their argument would be that we've we've abandoned the field on meaningful action on climate change. What's your reaction to that? Well, I think there are two reactions. First of all, I don't think you have to abandon the field in order to if you don't join under the Paris Agreement, it seems to me quite clear that the United States, if you look at the level of reduction in carbon dioxide, assuming that that's the relevant measure, uh, we've done as well or better as anybody else inside the Paris Agreement, and we've done it outside of centralized control. Uh, what has made the American effort distinctive is it turns out that large numbers of corporations have made the control of their own supply chains carbon dioxide, sen carbon dioxide sensitive, and that these particular changes have allowed them to increase output at the same time that they reduce the total amount of carbon dioxide that goes into the air. None of this is treaty-driven. It turns out that the Paris Agreement is not just a question about, quote, voluntary treaty reductions. You could do them in or out. It's also about transfer payments being made to one kind of nation to another kind of nation in order to equalize the carbon debt. Uh, to the extent that there is no enforcement mechanism under the Paris Treaty uh, that says that you have to do this at most a weak reporting situation, you could give public information about this as we do without rejoining the situation. And so I don't see any reason why you have to to rejoin in order to retain energy leadership. What you do is American companies go overseas and tell other people how they've done it and invite them to do the same thing. The second thing is, I don't think you can do this by executive order. Uh, if you recall during the um, Obama administration, uh, there was a huge convoluted uh, a solution, an ersatz solution, in which they said, unless you could find two-thirds of the people in either of the houses to oppose this thing, the thing will become law. Uh, that is absolutely inconsistent with the treaty requirements, which said that you have to have, I think, two-thirds of the senators present uh, voting for a particular proposal. Obama knew that he could not get that. It's pretty clear that uh, Biden could not get it either, even if the Democrats controlled the Senate. And so they're trying to do this end run. Uh, but what's going to happen is somebody's going to be able to say, here's an order that you're making. Standing will no longer be an issue. And they're going to say, we cannot be a member. Because to make it perfectly clear, we were out of this agreement on November 4th of this year, finally, completely, and totally. So the question of rejoining the treaty is not trying to undo an administrative action while you're still a member. It's now trying to reestablish entry. The constitutional law on this point is a little bit complicated 
complicated, but basically I think the sort of the consensus solution is you need the consent of Congress in order to join the treaty, but when it comes to exiting a treaty or modifying its various terms and conditions, that's exclusively within the province of the president. So if we were still in there, he might be able to say, ah, let's go back to full instead of partial membership. But since we're out of it, we're starting the process over again, and an executive order will not do it. It will be challenged in court, and in my guess, the president will lose on this thing, and I think it would be ill-advised for Biden to do this because the Paris Agreement is a bit of a shambles anyhow, and we can do anything that he wants to do by way of energy policy without rejoining the organization. Another item on the agenda is reinstating the policy put in place by the Obama administration to keep people who were brought to the country illegally as children in the United States. This is the cohort that's often referred to as the dreamers. Keep them in the country. Now, the Trump administration attempted to navigate this through the courts, had some trouble there. But part of the reason that this is so fraught, as our listeners will doubtlessly remember, is that President Obama enacted that policy through executive action rather than going through Congress. So there's a legal question here and there's a policy question here. Dissect those for us, Richard. Well, let's start with the legal question first. I mean, I think the mistake that Trump made and the mistake that the Democrats made is they try to do the DACA thing as part of a linked deal. And on the Democratic side, they overreached because they wanted not only to reinstate the previous status in which they were permanent aliens, they wanted to treat them as on the road to citizenship without any further requirements, which would be normally said for people who are legally in the United States. Um, they want to become citizens. They may have to go home. They may have to file various kinds of papers and so forth. I thought the Democrats moved the bridge too far, and they should not have tried that. Trump, I think, went a bridge too far because he says, well, I'm willing to play a deal with you on this issue if it turns out that what you do is you give me some funding for my wall. I suspect that those funds will be uh, certainly defunded to the extent that there's any way that the Biden administration can do it. And uh, uh, that was also a mistake. I think standing on its own, you should be able to get a status quo agreement through Congress with Republican blessing. And I think that Biden would be very wise to try and do that without overreaching. Uh, in terms of doing it by executive order, uh, the history on that uh, for uh Obama was very bad because he constantly said many a dozen times uh, that um, I am not a king. I cannot change legislative policy on a blanket basis by a simple order. And then he turns around and he says, I'm a man with a pen. I'm a man with a phone. And I'm a man who could do this by executive order. And he was kind of stopped by his earlier statement. Uh, so I don't think he should try that particular route. I think it's probably he has a very good chance of losing under these circumstances. Uh, they certainly lost on the DAPA program that is that associated with parents of children there. Um, and I think uh, now that this is a more Trump-like court, uh, more concerned with rule of law and administrative procedures, he's not going to have the Democratic judges who are sympathetic with these end runs. He's going to have a bunch of Republican judges who are not so sympathetic with it. And I think he's likely to fail. I might add that on the policy, I'm strongly in favor of trying to normalize the situation with respect to DACA and the Dreamers. Uh, but as a legal matter, I think that uh, I don't want to see any more fast and loose action with the DACA issue than I want to see with the Paris Agreement. One topic that has given rise to a lot of controversy this week has been student loan forgiveness. Chuck Schumer has proposed that Biden could cancel up to $50,000 in student debt per borrower using executive authority. Biden has suggested it should come from Congress 
and it should only be $10,000. So we don't have to get into the procedural side of that if you don't want to, but what do you make of this proposal, which is being sold to some degree as an economic stimulus measure to use government authority to relieve student debt? Uh, I think it's another one of uh, Chuck Schumer's terrible ideas. Um, the problem we got into in large measure was attributable to the Obama decision to take this particular program over, and at that point, all the underwriting restrictions are not there. I think the moment you start to forgive this kind of debt at any level, then people who've already paid off their debts are going to start to say that, hey, we ought to get a refund because why is it that when we were diligent and prompt, uh, we cannot uh, get out of this thing whereas other people can. I also think it's a terrible idea because the moment you believe in forgiveness of student grant debt, you're going to be in favor of tuition-free um, education, perhaps at the college level, perhaps anywhere else. Uh, so in general, I don't think you should touch this by executive order or by anything. Can you do it by executive order? Well, it have to actually have a very close look at the statutes and see what the forgiveness principles are. I think if it's an outright unmass uh, uh, reduction or elimination of that debt, my guess is he would probably lose in court. If there were some kind of conditions based on hardship, which have some origins in either the statute or the regulations, I think he would stand a much better chance of trying to do this thing. Uh, but I would regard this as in general a mistake because I think the people who have paid off their loans will be deeply antagonistic. And folks like myself, We'll simply see this as the first step of an effort to try to have the United States Treasury fund college education for just about everybody. On this issue, I'm quite relentless. It seems to me not everybody ought to go to college. And the moment you give free underwriting uh, for college education at any level, you're going to get people going to college who won't take full advantage of it. Um, the McDonald's company has a very simple rule about putting equity into a business. You can't borrow that money. It has to be your own money if you want to get a franchise because they want you to have some skin in the game, and if you lose something, you're going to lose it for yourself. I think that's a very good attitude with respect to the way in which we think about education, and asking people and their families to put the money up is going to change the mix of people who go into an educational pool, and it's going to change it for a better. Uh, if you expand the college population, say, by 50%, and all the students who come in cannot take full advantage of that education, you've wasted their time and our money. Um, I'm very much in favor of more people going into the trades where there's huge demand uh, for students in pretty open markets these days, rather than to sort of treat the college degree as it's sort of an extension of elementary or high school education. So I think it's a bad, bad idea. I think most ideas that come from Chuck Suma to spend public money are unwise. That's Richard, no surprise, I think. I'll ask you a process question, but an important one, I think. Two areas where we're seeing norms shift in Washington to varying degrees. The first is the amount of policy that presidents now make through executive orders. We saw a lot of that in the Obama administration, especially in the second term. We've seen a lot of it in the Trump administration, too. The other, which seems to be sort of an emerging departure from norms, President Trump had so much turnover in his cabinet that he ended up appointing a lot of people to serve as cabinet secretaries with acting status rather than having them go through the Senate confirmation. And there has been some suggestion that particularly with the prospect of a President Biden being met by a Republican-controlled Senate that will probably be disinclined to confirm some of his more progressive nominees, that he should simply do the same thing just do an end run in the Senate, appoint these people in an acting capacity. To what degree do either or both of those trends, the executive orders and the cabinet secretaries, bother you? 
Well, they both bother me, I, and I, it's independent of political party. I, I think the problem about executive orders is, is it constantly puts the legitimacy of the entire structure in play. Uh, the executive orders, which are intended to interpret and to apply a giving statute, well, that's simply part and parcels of the business, and they're kind of a substitute for regulation. But if, in fact, they're done out of whole cloth, they're going to be challenged, and in the interim, you'll have this very unhappy situation where people on the outside say that these things where aren't law, and the president and his or her minions are going to be in a position where they're going to treat them as if they were law. And so I treat the executive orders in the same kind of uneasy campus administrative guidances, which was another tactic. That one was not designed to avoid legislation but to avoid the notice and proper proceeding, notice and comment proceeding hearings that you needed to do under the Administrative Procedure Act, and those were very suspect. In fact, one of the good things that Trump did was he basically clamped down on the use and I think the abuse of these kinds of guidance procedures. So I don't like having major decisions made where the legitimacy can constantly uh, uh, be challenged. When it comes to nominations and conformity, uh, the single most important word that's missing from all of these dialogues is the word comedy, a C-O-M-I-T-Y. Nobody quite knows what it means, but everybody knows when it's not there. Uh, because a comedy is the kind of process in which you say, I have an at-will power to confirm and not to confirm, but I understand there's a set of loose social conventions, and I'm prepared to follow those conventions in the short run, even when they hurt me, because in the long run, they will help me. And if both parties keep to them, you can have an intertemporal agreement, which will make things better. And so what ought that treaty to be. Essentially, I think if you're asking a president as to who is going to be in his cabinet, uh, the basic intuition is he should have some degree of choice because it's his administration and there's no way he could appoint a secretary of state that will outlive his term in office. And so by all means, give him a little bit. That doesn't mean you have to play dead, but rather you would rather see the process go by negotiation. Uh, the president says, here are three guys I'm thinking of, and he says to the Democrats, answer to the Republicans, tell me which one you really don't like, and I'll pick from the other two. Things like that can work all the time, but it's a real reluctance to do so. And so if he makes these people acting, um, they probably have quote-unquote full authority in one sense, but it's always going to be that the acting label before their name may reduce the powers that they have under certain technical requirements that I'm not aware of, but it also essentially compromises their legitimacy when they have to deal with outside people. What what Trump also did is he found somebody who had to be confirmed for office, who had been confirmed, I believe, for some other office, so that you could move him in without the acting title if the two offices were roughly the same kind of caliber. Uh, but I think the Republicans should back down a little bit. I think the Democrats should not put to the limit. When it comes to judicial appointments or any appointments that last for longer than the term, then you could see obviously why there would be something. I think what the Democrats did to Kavanaugh and so forth was utterly indefensible. I think they're perfectly entitled to vote no when they don't have um, an agreement with him, but I don't think they're entitled to enter into mass campaigns of defamation. And I would certainly urge the Republicans, if they want to turn down a Trump, rather a Biden nominee, either to the Supreme Court or to some lower court, that they do not repeat the kinds of antics that took place on the other side. But on the other hand, I think that they have a stronger claim to say, look, this is a long-term thing, and it's going to outlast you, so we want to give it further deliberation, just as the Democrats were entitled to make that claim under Trump. Uh, but it's going to be a very difficult process, because my guess is 
that there's going to be no Democrats that are going to get through unless some Republican gets through on the judicial side. And they're going to have to be doing leg trades of one sort or another, put nominations up in pairs or whatever. I don't look forward to that particular process. But I think we've gotten to the point now where all trust is lost on both sides about how these things should run. So kind of intertemporal deals in which I'm nice to your guys this year because I know you're going to be nice to my guys when you take over power. Uh, when I take over power, I don't think we have those, uh, shall we say, intercessional deals that are available anymore. And I look forward to a very grim period in which distrust will take a very heavy toll by virtue of the fact that we have divided government and that there's no love lost on either side. So to that point, my final question for you, the landscape that we're looking at going into 2021, sizable Republican majority on the Supreme Court, very narrow and diminished Democratic control of the House, Somewhat moderate Democrat in the White House, at least compared to the rest of his party. And in the Senate, we don't know. It seems likely to be a very thin Republican majority, though there's a scenario where we get a 50-50 tie and, and Kamala Harris gets the tie-breaking vote. So I lay out the topography here to set up this question, Richard. Joe Biden campaigned on being a unifying figure and turning the temperature down in American politics. If he actually wanted to effectuate that, given these constraints— what sort of policy items would he be pursuing? I think he should probably pursue all the items he's going to pursue, but pursue them with much less vigor and so forth. Uh, so I, he wants to pursue an energy policy and wants to subsidize things the way in which Obama did. My guess is he could probably get away with that. If he wants to ban fracking, I think he's going to be in very big trouble. I think, in effect, what happens is he certainly doesn't have to shut down any student loan programs, but I think he's going to go a bridge too far if he tries to get all kinds of forgiveness. I think if he tries to put very radical progressive people in judicial or in key administrative positions or ambassadorships, he'll be run down. Um, what happened is the election is best understood as a mild rebuke and repudiation of Trump. Remember, he got over 70 million votes, so it's not as though he was a pariah and was beaten. Uh, but I think given the fact that he was at the head of the ticket, uh, the fact that the Republicans gained in the House and did not lose the Senate is a real sense that this country does not want um, very strong left policies. That's reinforced when you look at some of the state votes that I think it's worth mentioning. Uh, the Uber Lyft initiative passed, and the, the left and the Labor Party still has not forgiven it. Uh, the affirmative action program that they tried to introduce into California through Prop 16 was beaten back pretty decisively. Indeed, there was a substantial amount of black votes that were against it. And I think if he tried to introduce through federal situations, a return to some of the rules on sexual harassment that were eliminated by Betsy DeVos, that would be a mistake. If he wants to have an affirmative action policy which says, first you pass the affirmative action screen and then we worry about your merits, which is what's being done in the California system, that would also be a kind of a terrible mistake. And I think even on taxation, he should remember that the initiative in Illinois, uh, which was ahead 65-35, that is to get rid of the flat tax, it went down down 55-45 the other way, and this is in a liberal state. So he should basically essentially uh, not worry about the subtext having to do with particular programs, including the climate stuff, which sounds very far to the left. What he should worry about is the other thing, and he should try to govern as a unity president, and that's going to require him 
to make sure that he doesn't take vengeance. So Bill Galston today, you know, sensible as always, said, you know, I really do not think it's a very clever idea to think about any criminal prosecution for anybody in the Trump administration. And that's exactly right. If that issue goes the other way, uh, Bill Barr, say, or the president himself, then there'll be just total internecine warfare and the president will lose. And on that happy note, I think we should probably stop this conversation. <laughs> You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, at DefiningIdeas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. And if you enjoy the show, please read it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.